1: Hi, this is Cammie. Julie Gustafson is our guest today on Money Tales. After nearly three decades in wealth management and banking, Julie decided to dramatically change gears. She left her reliable job and transitioned to video and documentary production. This was quite a pivot from financial services. The common thread was that her work continued to focus on harnessing personal experiences. Julie and her business partner were telling the stories behind the art collections of their clients for the benefit of those who will inherit the collections, whether that be next generation of the family, a museum, or an unknown future buyer. When choosing to take this career risk, Julie followed her guiding principles. Begin with plan A, have plans B and C available if you need them, and talk through large expenses before plunging in. Today, Julie owns and operates MJG Advisory LLC. They collaborate with companies, artists, and not-for-profit organizations on planning, Marketing and fundraising strategies.
2: Hi, this is Sandy. Here are a couple of key money tale conversation topics that Julie brings to life in this episode. First, the importance of having well articulated principles to guide your financial decisions. And second, the benefit of recording important personal and family stories for posterity so you're not reliant on just your memory. Please stick around after the interview when Cammie and I discuss the role of art collections in a wealth plan. Now, onto our conversation with Julie Gustafson. Hello,
1: Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie, and I'm here with my co host, Sandy. Sandy, we were talking earlier about some money conversations you're having at home. Would you mind sharing a little bit more with our listeners
2: today? I have been talking with our 13 year old daughter about investing. She had a bat mitzvah last December. It was a beautiful event. She studied really hard. She was wonderful. She led a very meaningful service and her friends and family were very generous and she ended up with a lot of money. So we've been having money conversations at home, including she and I sitting down around our kitchen table, talking about what investments are and why investing is so important and all the nuts and bolts and considerations I had a lot of fun. I'm not sure if she'd call it fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any interesting or surprising questions from your daughter?
2: What surprised me the most was how literal she was about learning. She was really paying attention to what I said, and I was using some metaphors, and she was taking me a little too literally. So That was interesting. I got a chance to really see how she learns as an individual, but she's wicked smart. And I know I'm her mom and (laughs) it doesn't sound right for me to say, but she was really grasping the concepts. It was a lot of fun. And we're having a lot more conversations about what's happening in the stock market these days, now that she understands it a little bit better.
1: Sandy, what a gratifying time for a wealth manager to be talking to her daughter about these important concepts. So speaking of talking, let's jump in. I'd like to introduce our guest today, Julie Gustafson. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Great. Julie, could you introduce yourself, sharing two or three pivotal moments that really influenced you in your life?
3: My name is Julie Gustafson. I'm the founder and president of a newish company called MJG Advisory. We work with a diverse clientele to create concepts, foster connections, build strategies for clients in sectors such as wealth, art, and philanthropy. Our services include writing, marketing, and even fundraising, and a little bit of video. My professional background actually started in finance, and it was not by design, but really ended up being a fortunate accident. My first job was as a teller while a working college student. So I had to pay tuition, and it was a job that helped me to get to where I wanted to go. And it ultimately and surprisingly led me down a path into a career that I not only grew to love, but it was an invaluable learning experience. And it especially taught me from the very beginning and built upon building blocks from childhood about attitudes about money. And the emotion of money and wealth. It's.
1: It's emotional.
3: Very, very emotional. I was in wealth management for nearly 29 years. And late 2016, decided to take a step back. What ended up happening was a new path emerged for me, which was video and documentary production. And that's not a part of my background either. I ended up in a partnership working with a longtime friend and mentor from Chicago and our company, which was called Heirlooms on Video, worked with the art world. So primarily collectors, and we were focused on telling the personal stories behind the collections going beyond provenance and legal documents to capture stories for the benefit of those who will inherit the collections, whether that be next generation, which is typical, or even museums or a buyer who may purchase a piece at auction. So it was really fascinating. It built upon my love of understanding the story and the rationale behind different decisions that we make. I love stories. We do too. Tell us, Julie, when did you
2: first become aware of people's money attitudes?
3: So I think that's going to be taking me back a long time, but probably to childhood. It starts at home before we get that first job. I grew up in a middle-class family, but still one that had a lot of financial stress. Grew up in a very affluent area. The concepts of people having a lot, sometimes too much, and others not having enough really makes an impression upon you as a child and as a young adult.
1: So you were middle-class in this affluent area. How'd that make you feel?
3: I was okay because quite frankly, I had friends from many different walks of life. Some came from very, very wealthy families. Others were smaller, wealthy or whatnot, but I never felt altogether left out. But it did leave a mark because you have concerns that your mom and dad may be having about taking care of certain things that other families take for granted, or it's not even a thought. You feel a little different.
2: I'm curious, you mentioned that you grew up with a lot of financial stress around you. Could you describe the
3: stress and what you were taking away from it? Grew up in a large family. Both of my parents, one came from wealth, the other didn't. Things that other people took for granted that normally kids don't get involved in, the heavier money decisions of whether it be related to the house or buying a car or things like that. There is always that heaviness around. And certainly, as I said, I was a working student. I had the benefit of a very, let's say, expansive view. Some of that just by dint of my friends, but also my own attitudes that were formed about money and decisions that I made when I was younger that have been guiding principles throughout my life. Not trying to be judgmental, but certainly from a security standpoint, making sure that I was going to be okay no matter what and take everyone I loved with me. I'm a nurturer by nature. Somebody coined that about me decades ago. And I think that still holds true today. I love taking care of people.
1: So tell us more about these guiding principles.
3: I got into finance by accident and didn't really have a curiosity other than, oh, there's a paycheck that's involved here. But watching and hearing adults, people that I cared about and seeing struggle, that was one. And then it really taught me a couple of things. Number one, to the extent possible, having a plan, even a plan B and a plan C if you need it. And I tend to go there, which even drives my husband crazy, but I will go there. And then also really thinking through large purchases or any financial decisions that take on an element of risk perhaps your partner's not comfortable with or doesn't really fit overall, really what you're talking about with your clients every single day. Sometimes we need that voice of reason to say, hey, this is going to make sense and this is why. These guiding principles have really helped me in my own life. Julie, I'm curious about
2: the time that you spent helping people document the stories of their art
3: collection. Because art is invariably mixed in with money. It absolutely is. Just like with finance was not a part of my original plan, art wasn't either. I grew up loving art, but never took an art history class. Appreciated it just visually and happened through the course of my career. Worked for institutions that had celebrated collections, but also a nice, coincidence and fun factor was having client families that weren't collecting. Some just starting out, others very established and being able to learn at their need, what was driving them to collect and what they were buying and why, and equally important, how they were paying for it. What were they using? Were they using leverage? Were they paying from cash? And what was the end game? What is the ultimate goal for it? It's a passion during lifetime, but what's going to happen to it? These were a lot of the elements of conversations I was having with clients day in and day out because sometimes the next generation doesn't want the art. They say, mommy and daddy, they like old masters. I'm modern and contemporary. They have three big houses and I have one condo and I'm traveling around the world and I don't want it. So I don't know how to tell them without breaking their heart. I would be in the middle because the kids or grandkids would be talking to me in one ear. And of course, the matriarch, patriarch of the family would be having conversations and everything was under a document, well-crafted estate plan, but it's the conversations that even in lifetime, if we're having them, our minds go to different places. We're in different stages of life. How well is it heard? And is the decision really taking hold with someone? Or sometimes it's just a big surprise that ends up in a state plan, like, surprise, you get the art collection and someone else gets the car collection. How do people handle that? So when I left B of A, uh, my mentor, Dr. Robert Jordan, is an experienced journalist and author and was already working with wealthy families on documentaries about the history of the family. But he knew through his association with me that I also had developed this I call it a passion. Other people call it a specialization in art. That was something that led him to ask me, instead of going back out into the wealth management realm, which I pretty much intended on doing, I'd offers to do so. He offered me, instead of choosing what was on the table, to take something that was off the table and bring it onto the table. And that was the idea of forming a new company to focus on the art world, to focus on collections and collectors and telling the story of the journeys of these collections and the hopes and aspirations behind them. Loved it. I still do. It was really fascinating because not everything is on the back of the painting. It's not documented anywhere. And inevitably through interviews or when we're filming, There would be things that came out that even members of staff that helped to take care of the collections, collections manager, the conservator, they'd be sitting behind a couch where we're doing an interview and they'd be like, I never knew that. So it's a lot of fun. And who doesn't love being able to see and hear someone that they love in life, and especially if they've passed away, talking about one of their passions and saying that. This is for you. And this is why it's a joy and it's a real privilege. And of course, these are all for private audiences. It's for legal ownership of the person who contracted with us, but knowing that the family can have that and play it over and over is really powerful.
1: By telling these stories in video, you're recording something really important and what a gift to pass on. You're also facilitating a conversation. And you talked about these crossroads of one generation being very passionate about this collection, but maybe a next generation isn't. What did you learn about these conversations about how to have more productive conversations?
3: What's really interesting is that in the best of families, most close knit, there are conversations and there are deep conversations, but sometimes, and especially when it involves death or inheritance, There's a lot of conversation that happens. Sometimes people, their mind's going somewhere else. They're focused on, oh my God, I have to pick up the kids from school or I have to do these other things. So the conversations, they don't take hold. I speak to a lot of my former clients today, is that it's, gosh, I wish I could remember exactly how, whether it be how the story itself went or understanding the true intention. I wish I had paid more attention to it, but it's also been a great way for the generations that are making the request to have a bird's eye view into what's the reaction here. Perhaps make that plan B or plan C or making it more of a family endeavor and taking into account what the next generation's attitudes may be. I laugh when I talk to my nieces and nephews because I'm like, okay, I know technically I'm a few generations above you now, But their attitudes about money, about a variety of different things, and simplicity seems to be a big thing. I think it's a great conversation, two ways, often even more ways. The other thing I will say is what I love about that work is we always ask a client, who is your cast of characters? Who would you like to be a part of this? We don't just sit down, put a camera at you, and you just read off answers to questions. We want it to be conversational and the people that help to protect the integrity of the collections, being able to have them, because often it's you well know, both of you, that knowing who our parents, our grandparents, having our own relationships and fostering those relationships, how important it is. Otherwise, in the case of an art collection, it's almost like, oh, I'm starting from Zed. What do I do here? I don't know them. The attorney, I know him, but he's not going to help me with, what do I do with this? It's in a storage facility and the monthly fees are killing me. How do I fully honor what my parents want? So it's a nice way to have that conversation. And it can be continuing dialogue because you're always open to doing new chapters because once an art collector, always an art collector, they tend to buy more.
2: Things shift over time. So I like that going back
3: to the conversation, it's not a one and done. It's a continual check-in. And technology can change as well so understanding that how are things working out? Is anything new? But also, is there anything that we need to be aware of? Do we need to upgrade?
2: And new types of art too, with all the NFTs that are happening. It's really fascinating to
3: see how that's blossoming. And it opens up a conversation and involves other members of the family. It's really great. And it's a lot of fun. Julie, tell us about
2: leaving that business and starting MJG Advisory, because that sounds like a pretty courageous leap that you've taken.
3: I will say it's courageous only because I'm still scary. Luckily, my husband is a great partner in crime. He's another voice of reason, which really helps me. When COVID became official, I was in New York. I was at the Armory Show in New York. So I was visiting clients. I had a video short with me of an artist, Mario Castillo, whom I'd been starting to work with in Chicago. And so I was visiting galleries. I went to the Whitney Museum and all of a sudden the world just stopped in what we thought was going to be a couple of weeks turned into two plus years. Here we are today. So there was no filming being done. Countless hours of Zoom. I would love to add up all the time that I've spent because I was still globetrotting. I was going to art fairs virtually around the world, taking part in these private chats with collectors and different folks in the art world. I'm sure you're having to get up at odd times at night to be able to participate. It was crazy. Oh, I loved getting up at two in the morning to take part in something happening in Hong Kong, but I was like, got to do it. I think I may need some caffeine for this, but it just was dragging on and on and on. And MJG Advisory, actually, I'll plug my attorney, he was the one when Heirloom started, he had suggested, he said, you may decide that you're going to take on additional endeavors or you want to do something completely different. So we want to have you ready. So with MJG Advisory, really the business started coming in in 2020 and it was random things. People were reaching out, farmer clients were reaching out. I do sit on several boards in Chicago. People were coming to me with different philanthropic questions like, I'm launching a not-for-profit and we want to do our first fundraiser. What should we do? What should that look like? And I felt like there are enough conversations going on and it just can't be COVID because people are looking to keep on going, not just sit stagnant. And at the same time, I was having multiple conversations with people that I couldn't get in front of in real life before COVID came on. They were too busy, too busy. It's like, yeah, I think I might want to do a video, but I'm not sure. And they suddenly had all the time in the world at eight o'clock in the evening to, it's like, let me grab a glass of wine and I'll grab my wife and my phone's coming over. And we want to sit and we want to talk about what this could be, what it could look like. I was grateful because it kept my head in the game. And some of these ideas, these conversations are now coming into fruition. And I will say this ladies. As someone who is used to earning a W-2 paycheck for many, many, many years, it was very humbling. And my husband would tell you, she's crazy, but I have not, not earned a regular paycheck since I was 19. I was like, this is just absolutely crazy.
2: That's a really big change and transformation. And starting a business is one of the hardest things anyone can do. So, without the cash flow happening early on, what's your advice for listeners who might be thinking about starting their own business? How did you get through
3: that period? Have a really sound plan. A new business is never without risk, no matter how great the plan is. I'm a big fan of plan A, but also plan B, plan C. I really leaned on and into. People that I knew and trusted, our family's accountant, the attorney, my husband, who comes from a financial background, because I'm not in this alone. And just am I crazy? Am I off my head here in what I'm doing? Because it's very tough. And to survive the first year, that's one litmus test, not just for restaurants, really in general, but also being very lucid and realistic about the timeline and how much capital to expend. And especially if credit's involved, and I feel fortunate and blessed because I haven't gone down that road other than having a corporate credit card, but being able to be honest with yourself, but also understand that at what point might I have to make a pivot or pare back on what I'm doing. For me, it's early days, but now that the world opened up, starting to take meetings again, seeing people in person, it's like, oh my gosh, bring on the contracts and it's definitely not without risk. And I think realistically, my husband has been a huge supporter and cheerleader for me. I can just say this, with heirlooms on video, he was very cautious from the standpoint that he loves my business partner. We do. He's like family. But at the same time, it was a real game changer in our household because I was going from senior position to essentially more in self-employed mode. So I'm grateful to him, not only for the opportunity of what I've been able to experience and hope to achieve, but also in recognition that did life appreciably change for us? Kind of, sort of, but not a complete game changer. So the worries that I talked about having as a child, that's not real today in this situation, which is a comfort. Like, there's a lot of trust embedded there. There's a lot of trust. He's also has a background in wealth management. He's the first person I go to, I'll bounce an idea off of.
1: What a great partnership. Julie, you referenced your nieces and nephews, a different generation, and you said that their attitudes about money are different. You referred to simplicity. Would you share more about that?
3: What's interesting is that I love talking to friends, children about the views of money because simplistic, meaning that they don't desire a big car, right? The big SUV. No, they don't want that. Understanding investments, but also having a personal stake in the investments. So when we talk about sustainability, we talk about the environment, they're very passionate about the causes that they believe in. I think that just as what we're seeing play out in real time today with families around the world, using that as an opportunity to further, especially family philanthropy and getting all voices to the table, not necessarily giving them control of the purse strings. As Sandy was pointing out earlier, when you were talking to children, nieces and nephews, they're like sponges. They know a lot. And most of them, they're not afraid to share what their opinions are. It's amazing. I actually had a conversation over Christmas with my nephew. He's also our godson and has a full-time job. And he was talking about investments. And someone in the room was talking about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. Here goes Aunt Julie coming over. I'm not saying it's bad, but he's pretty much brand new. I think that when you have the first full year of work and you're living at home Ask him what his purpose is for the money. And then also don't immediately from the get-go start thinking, get richer quicker. That's not the way to do it. It's not a bad if you're interested in learning more about it and then dipping your toe in, be sensible. It's not put it all in and hope for the best. And oh, I still have a job. As I told him, I said, Han, you are really doing all the right things and you're asking the right questions based upon what you're saying. You can take a little bit of risk, but Form your own opinions and seek out guidance, not necessarily from me, but just from people that you trust and that you feel really hear you and no knee-jerk reaction. So <laughs> you always worry that it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go home. And next thing you know, all the funds go into Bitcoin or something. He's lucky to have Aunt Julie. I'm a pain in the neck at times, but he's a good kid. And we're such a, a different world now. When I think back on my career, I feel like it's all gone like that. But a lot of the worries that we have today, it's for the younger generations and that they have for themselves. They were probably there, but just not on the front burner like they are now. There's so many different things that it's definitely more
2: complicated. Julie, that sounds like a great conversation. And it makes me wonder, what's
3: your next money conversation going to be? And who is it going to be with? My next money conversation is going to be with my husband. And the reason for that is I love to set budgets for myself. So in terms of MJG advisory, setting a budget with the world opening up again, a lot of my work is predicated about travel, not only to see clients for a project, but also visiting different art fairs and being able to spend and meet prospective clients there. It's fun, but it's work. But I want to be realistic based upon airfares and all that. And then just build it in and weigh that out against where we're currently at. Again, he's my partner in life and saying, this is one thing, am I missing anything or is it too much? Or And he's usually fine. He's like, Julie, let's just put another 20% there just to make sure that you're okay, which I'm hoping is what he'll do when we have the conversation this week. But yeah, that's going to be my next one.
1: What a important conversation to be having. It sounds like you have them often with your husband, which we think is really important, not just with our partners, but with everyone out there. And Julie, thank you again for joining us on Money Tales and sharing so much about yourself. We wish you continued success with MJG Advisory and your ongoing money conversations.
3: I appreciate both of you in this conversation so, so much. Thank you.
1: Sandy, what a great conversation with Julie just now. She talked a lot about her role in the art world and telling those stories. What part does art play in someone's wealth plan?
2: I'd love to talk about that. But first, I want to say how fun it is for Julie to have gotten to get to know so many different art collectors over the latest chapters of her career and get to talk to them, hear their stories and the importance of the collection in their lives. I think that's fascinating. And I love the idea of her recording those stories. Kimmy, art collections are things that we see in our clients' wealth plans all the time. Some clients have just a few pieces of art that are really important to them or that they might have inherited. Other clients are collecting art and they might be collecting a certain type of art, usually focused on a period of time. And when we think about it in the wealth plan, we're not usually thinking about these assets as assets that clients are going to need to liquidate and live off of. Typically, they're assets that bring a lot of joy and good feelings to the client and that they want to continue to own. So what's really important to think about is how to protect the value of the asset if it were to be stolen or if something were to happen to the home or maybe a painting is hanging in. Insurance becomes a really key part. Insurance becomes really important also if the collector is loaning pieces of their collection out to museums. In order to allow the piece to be part of an exhibit. So, there's a lot to think about with insurance. Having a great insurance broker who really knows the space and can help think through all the different considerations is really important. Another consideration about having art collections as part of one's wealth plan is what is the end plan for the art? As I mentioned before, people who collect art tend to enjoy it during their lifetime when they're no longer living, they can't enjoy the art themselves. So the question comes, does the art get passed down to other generations of the family or is it instead given to a museum or is it meant to be sold? And all three of those choices have different implications. A lot of families will like to pass down the art, but if the art is extremely valuable relative to the rest of the client's balance sheet, Estate taxes can become a consideration, and it can be very difficult to pass the art to the next generation. And giving art to charitable organizations is another popular course of action. There is a charitable gift deduction that comes into play for the estate or for the person if they're giving the art away during their lifetime. But there is a wrinkle here. The charitable organization that is receiving the art. Must be the type of organization that would be in the normal business of displaying the art in order to get a charitable deduction equal to the full value of the art. If the family is planning to sell the art, they have to think through the capital gains cost. And art, unlike appreciated investments, has a different gains tax rates. It's taxed at a collectibles rate, which is currently 28%, which is different than the highest capital gains rate today of 20%. So, there's a lot of technical aspects to art that people don't really think about. It's really fun to work with clients, understand the importance of the art collection in their life, and help them plan for what they want to do with the collection when they are done with it, either in its entirety or in its pieces.
1: I would never have thought that art has so much complexity. One of the things I thought about, which Julie talked about, is the next generation and whether or not they'd want the art or value the art in the way that first generation did, which is complex in itself.
2: I have a great story to share about that. We have a client who had a beautiful painting that was very important to the family, and the client had multiple children. And at the end of the client's life, the children couldn't divide that piece into three. And it was a big portion of the client's overall estate. There wasn't enough resources after paying estate tax for even one of the adult children to take the painting. So what this family did is they had three reproductions of the painting made so that each of the adult children could have a reproduction hanging in their home, and then they otherwise disposed of the artwork from the estate. And I thought that was a really elegant solution that we helped them craft.
1: What a beautiful solution! And then it lives on beyond the first generation. It's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that. Money tells listeners. Great to have you in this conversation. Would love to hear from you. You can email Sandy and me at podcasts at we look forward to seeing you next time.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.